Welcome to InfoSecurity Magazine's monthly podcast, bringing you news highlights, topical debate, and expert interviews from the information and cybersecurity world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this first InfoSecurity Magazine podcast of 2023. I'm your host, Beth Mondral, editor here at InfoSecurity Magazine. And as always, I'm joined by our deputy editor, James Coker, and news reporter, Kevin Poirot. So happy new year, guys. Um, Welcome back. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Beth. Happy new year, everyone. Happy new year, both. Good to be back on the podcast, the first one of 2023. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Starting off with a bang as well, as we're going to be diving into data privacy. So in January, there is Data Privacy Week, which is a global campaign um, which seeks to spread awareness about online privacy, uh, which, of course, is becoming more and more important. And also, I think we can all agree it's like hitting the headlines um, a lot more in terms of data breaches and customers knowing what data they're handing over to big companies. In 2021, the National Cybersecurity Alliance expanded the campaign to encompass a full week from originally just having it on a single day. This year, Data Privacy Week is taking place from the 22nd to the 28th of January. So if you are wanting more information after you've listened to our wonderful podcast, you can head to the Info Security Magazine website and we're going to have a number of interviews and features that we'll be publishing online relating to data privacy. During this podcast, James and Kevin are going to highlight a couple of things that they've been exploring in the world of data privacy and some of the regulations surrounding that. Obviously, GDPR being one of the largest and most well known. And later, we will be talking to Valerie Lyons, who is the Chief Operating Officer at BH Consulting, and her PhD research in information privacy as ESG, Environment, Social and Governance, has actually won awards. So she is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to data privacy. And she spoke to James about a range of areas in the world of data privacy, such as the real world impact of legislation um, and how she expects development of AI, and she gets a mention of ChatGBT in there as well, to affect our online privacy over the coming years. So stay tuned for that. But before we speak to Valerie, let's start with the InfoSec team. James, I know you wanted to have a look at GDPR. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> GDPR is going to mention on this, this episode. I really wanted to kind of highlight kind of the stricter actions being taken by regulatory bodies in regard to GDPR and, and I guess probably other data protection legislation that we're seeing as well. I think it's fair to say in the in the early years of the EU's uh, GDPR coming into force, uh, which was in 2018, regulators took a relatively lenient approach in those earlier years in terms of the fines issued. And that's not to say there weren't any significant penalties issued. We, we definitely saw that with the likes of BA and, and Marriott in the UK, for example. But it was a relatively low-key start 
I think experts agree in terms of enforcement, probably to give organisations a bit more time to to adapt to the regulations and, and get used to things. But we really have seen things ramp up in the in the past uh, probably eighteen months or so. And I think a particularly landmark moment was came in July twenty twenty one when the Luxembourg's data protection regulator fined Amazon a whopping seven hundred and forty six million euros, and this was for infringements regarding Amazon's advertising targeting system that was deemed to have been carried out without proper consent. This action really seemed to be the precipice for more fines being issued and also the the value of the fines really ramping up. And so to highlight this, in in the last issue of the Info Security uh, Print Magazine, we did a feature showing the top 10 list of fines issued uh, for data protection violations at the time of writing, it must be stressed, uh, as I think there's been one or two new ones coming in since then. Um, But these included big fines against Meta for violations relating to personal data last year. One was for 405 million euros and another for 265 million euros. So uh, yeah, I I think it's clear that regulators are now really clamping down on GDPR, they're saying to, especially to big tech firms that you've had more than enough time to adhere to these rules and and we're going to come at you hard when when you do violate the rules. So underline this further, just this week, in fact, we, we covered a story in Info Security magazine that the law firm DLA Piper found that the cost of GDPR fines surged 168% to over 2.9 billion uh, euros in the over the past year and that's across all of the EU's 27 member states in addition to the UK, Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein that also use the regulations. And just one other thing to mention in that the UK um, which is obviously now left the EU and, and has regularly been discussing sort of diverging from the original GDPR rules um, uh, but hasn't hasn't sort of happened at, at the moment but their regulator, um, the ICO, has, has been sort of implementing an approach of scaling back fines issued against government entities, um, which is somewhat controversial given that there's obviously the huge pr- penalties issued against private firms for, for similar violations. So, uh, yeah, I think that's something definitely to keep an eye on uh, in, in the area of enforcement going forward. Yeah, some of these um, fines do have eye-watering figures attached to them, um, definitely. GDPR has been, um, as you said, James, it's been around for a while now. So definitely regulators are a bit like, well, come on, guys, uh, get with the program. Um, And uh, yeah, GDPR was um, indoctrinated on the 25th of May. 2018. So if you've got Data Privacy Week in your calendar, add GDPR's birthday in there. And um, also Mm. for our UK listeners, the UK is trying to figure out its own version of GDPR under the uh, Data Reform Bill, which Kevin spoke to a couple of experts about just before Christmas, actually, talking about their criticisms of the effort and what needs to be done and what needs to be focused on. So do check that out. Um, Just search Data Reform Bill on the InfoSecurity magazine website. Um, But Kevin, over to you now. I know you wanted to dive into passwords and how they relate to your personal data. 
Yeah, because because uh, what small pressures than than our passwords when when it comes to our personal data? We all know what what happened uh, during the, the the Christmas and New Year's period, uh, where LastPass has been suffering from a big breach, and it was like all over the news, all over the cybersecurity news at least. But what specifically caught my attention in this story is what followed that because following the the announced breach. A LastPass user filed a class action lawsuit. I think it was in early January of uh, so of 2023. They filed a, a class action lawsuit against the password management provider for failing to prevent the breach. And uh, while LastPass did say that the the hacker still needs the master password to access the user's vault, um, the lo- the lawsuit points out that the hacker store unencrypted personal information about users, including billing addresses, email addresses, or telephone numbers, along with website URLs assigned to each encrypted password. So the hacker could easily exploit this information to target LastPass users with phishing emails designed to scam them. Also, um, the story as, as, uh, as it was told by uh, James on, on our website, the story has not only put LastPass under scrutiny, but also the whole the use of password managers as a whole. So James has been speaking to security experts, and um, and they were actually emphasizing the fact that those tools still remain a crucial means of protecting users and organizations against cyber attacks. But what uh, most of the the experts that James talked to said that rather than giving up on password managers altogether, they said they advised concerned users to give more attention to the security architecture and the technology infrastructure that their password manager is using. Um, One expert said that they should look at prioritizing security certifications such as SOC 2 or um, ISO 27001 and FedRAMP. So do look into that if if that's something that you are interested in and if you want to change your your password manager or if you want to get a new one, uh, maybe that's something to consider. What what I find interesting also in in that comment is that um, it it kind of follows uh, a trend that I've been seeing and we've been talking about it in in a previous podcast is that a lot of cybersecurity experts these days are, are, are not just saying, oh, we should like, users should do this or should do that. They are actually trying to empower users and, and hold them accountable for how they approach cybersecurity and, and how they make privacy choices and how, how they choose the right tools. So that's definitely something that, uh, that we've been seeing. And, and I find that interesting because we, we're, all, we're all the master of our own lives and, and all it also is true for cybersecurity. Yeah, I think definitely people are more aware of where their data is going, how safe their data is. I think it's interesting that the class action lawsuit that you mentioned in your overview of what's happened does actually relate to privacy and the data side of things. The lawsuit has been made anonymously in the US, but I'm sure we'll see more of this come out um, in the not too distant future. But in terms of awareness of data and where it is and who's using it and how safe it is, I think that's something that we're seeing is really important now, not just to the cybersecurity community in terms of what tools they're using, but the consumers at large, really. So, James, let's head over to your interview with Valerie. How did that go? I know some of the things we've kind of touched on, you explored further with her. 
Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was it was brilliant to catch up with Valerie. Um, as you said earlier, she's so knowledgeable about the the field of data privacy, uh, and she gave a really good explanation of sort of the main trends that we're seeing in data privacy, but doing it in such a, it's obviously such a big field to cover, but she, she does it in such a, such an engaging way. So um, yeah, I re really encourage people to, to listen to this interview, which is uh, coming up now. Thank you very much for joining us for this month's episode, Valerie. I'd just like to start by asking you, what impact are you observing from the growth of data privacy legislation around the world on, on business behaviours? And are you observing any challenges relating to the effectiveness of these rules that you think need to be addressed? Hi, James. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. A, a number of challenges, I suppose, and, and um, areas of growth. The first, I suppose, would be increased investment in privacy driven by consumer awareness of data breaches. Um, now, obviously, that comes from mandatory breach disclosure rules and data protection legislation. But the challenge associated with that is really how much is enough. So, you know, how much do we actually invest in privacy before we know we've achieved enough in terms of not just compliance, but beyond compliance? And then the other challenge associated with that is that leaves us when we invest in privacy in such a way so as to become compliant, asking ourselves just because you can doesn't mean you should. So often we have organizations doing things that are legally acceptable, but one wonders, should they really be doing it? So, you know, even with the increased investment in privacy, we see organizations still breaching a sense of trust rather than a sense of compliance. That's the first one. The second one I see is an increase in the number of DPOs and privacy professionals, which has obviously come from the requirement in data protection legislation to appoint DPOs in certain cases. And this has led to a sense of full employment for uh, many countries and, and many legal jurisdictions where privacy professionals are now in full employment. And um, this is wonderful for anybody who's working in the sector. Wonderful for anybody coming into the sector, but the challenge, <clears throat> excuse me, the challenge for organizations now is recruiting these people has become more complex because it's an employer's, an employee's market now. And the cost of resource, that employee is now costing more because of the demand. So, so this has increased uh, again, um, a, a, an additional investment cost has increased. And then finally, um, we see the use of privacy to engender consumer trust. And, and we see this coming from privacy as a CSR, uh, a corporate social responsibility, and, and privacy becoming part of the ESG agenda, um, which is the environment, social and governance agenda. But the challenge here is the looking good versus being good. This is a, a term that was created by um, scholars Chun and Aragadona, um, who were, were CSR scholars, they said it's looking good versus being good. So an awful lot of organizations are taking privacy and using it to make them look good. But if you look under the hood, it's not as good as it seems. So uh, quite often, particularly when you look at organizations, large organizations, CSO reports, you see them incorporating privacy into their CSO reports. But when you actually look at what they're doing, it's just compliance. Window dressed as something special, something um, that they're doing that's socially good. 
And so often you find that they're saying their compliance programs have been rolled out to all the organizations within their remit, but they have to do that. But they just write it in a way, and it's marketing really, they write it in a way that makes them look good rather than actually being good. Whereas you can look at some CSO reports and you can see in those CSO reports, I'll give you an example, which is Microsoft, where they say they're rolling out GDPR to all their organizations, regardless of whether there's an obligation there to implement GDPR. Um, <clears throat> so you could say that this is actually being good, doing right by privacy. Um, at the same time, I could argue uh, that, in fact, those organizations are just implementing GDPR because it's easier to pick one piece of legislation, the, the, the most robust piece of legislation, and apply that across the board than to apply and manage a panoply of legislation across multiple jurisdictions. So, so you know, I, I, you don't know the truth, um, but you have to just take what you read in CSO reports at face value. And another area that's, that's being discussed that is, is expected to, to impact the field of privacy is a, the growth of AI technologies. How do you expect these technologies to, yeah, to, to impact data privacy uh, going forward over the next decade? So, AI, I mean, essentially, AI can do stuff. We'll call it stuff. Like it can do stuff that takes human beings inordinate amounts of time to do. If we think about what that is, what does it take um, human beings inordinate amount of time to do? Well, trawl through big data um, to see trends. It, it, it struggles. You know, human beings struggle to see trends in big data. Whereas AI can do it in, in, in milliseconds. Within the AI uh, sort of domain, what we've seen most recently is um, from OpenAI, ChatGBT. And it's a chatbot that interacts in a conversational way to answer questions and formulate text. And that's essentially what privacy professionals do, is we answer questions and we formulate text. And so I, I think in, a, in, in AI, we can talk about the good that AI can do and, and the mundane tasks that it can take away from human beings, but we can also see, is there, is there something that AI is going to do to, to, to influence or, or alter our roles? And as professionals, we create privacy policies. That's one of one of the significant things that, that we do as professionals in, in the privacy domain is the creation of privacy policies that are customized and that are made exact for a particular organization. And ChatGPT creates those privacy policies. It looks out and it learns from what it sees in privacy policies, and then it brings that back and it creates a privacy policy. Now, right now, if you look at the privacy policies that it's creating, they're pretty rubbish, but it will learn. Um, and that, that is where, a, you know, AI uh, benefits is it's constantly learning. So I think we're going to see a huge change in the privacy profession in terms of what our role is um, and how that will adapt. I don't see it as a threat. I've heard some people speaking about it as a threat. I think that the privacy professional, it brings an intelligence that AI will never be able to bring. And so we can use the AI to help us do our job better. That's really what it is. And to simplify our job. And I don't think it's ever going to be able to do our job the way we do it. 
Another part of AI is inferential data. This this data is data that doesn't actually exist. So I don't submit this data to an organization. An organization can infer the data. And it does so really, really well using AI with big data. And and the problem with inferential data is I don't know as a consumer that the organization has it. I gave you my name, my address, my age, and and the organization infers something from it. Um, And that inference may in fact be sensitive data, but I have not submitted sensitive data to the AI, to the organization. And we see a very good example of this with the Lithuanian government. They had a service that required you to uh, submit your name and your spouse's name. And if your name was uh, Mary and your spouse's name was Susan, the system could infer your sexual orientation. And it obviously went to, you know, the the, the data subject um, took the case uh, to um, the the Data Protection Commission in Lithuania and, and the data subject won. Um, because inferential data is, is something we have no control over as a consumer. And... We don't know that it's being inferred. We don't know that it's being collected. If I give you my name and address, I know that I've given you my name and address. And there's a huge amount of value to be had in inferential data for the organization. We see trends and patterns in in um, in my buying behavior. We see trends and patterns in my uh, interactivity online. Um, for instance, a really good example of inferential data being used for the better comes from um, Microsoft who have uh, created, uh, again, it's it's using AI, the ability to look at your keyboard movements and your mouse movements to detect if you've got Parkinson's, early onset Parkinson's. And this has been correlated with medical tests for the same patients. So they've been able to to link the two and say that this is actually a robust way of detecting early onset Parkinson's. How amazing is that? Alzheimer's too was another um, early onset Alzheimer's. And, and so that's a great way of using the data. But you need to think about the implications of collecting that kind of information. Without my my knowledge, uh, you know, if you're going to infer something that's hugely sensitive, you need in GDPR, you need um, uh, uh, a legal basis in Article 6 and a legal basis in Article 9. But if I collect data that is just my name and address, I don't need those two legal bases. I only need that one from Article 6. So we see complications in this space. And I think that um, AI is really going to open up that Pandora's box and and it's yet to be really resolved as to how do we manage that going forward. So there are two big areas I see from an AI perspective that are complexities that we have yet to resolve. Thank you very much, Valerie. And uh, yeah, it's great great to hear the potential positive impact of AI on privacy as well as the uh, the, the concerns that there are. Um, so yeah, let's, let's hope that that can be kind of used used in the, the right way going forward. I also wanted to ask you about have you observed a change in the way that we look and think about privacy in, in recent years from a consumer perspective? And what impact are you seeing this evolution, if any, or having on the real world? 
Well, if we look back to sort of um, the 1890 Warren and Brandeis, their uh, seminal paper on the right to be let alone, that's where privacy sort of began. So where have we come since then? Um, well, well, that was about privacy and what we're talking more often about is data protection. But we see that the two terms have become interchanged and interrelated. We use them interchangeably, uh, as do I, uh, but they, they are different. But we see now that we've moved from this right to be let alone in our physical selves to the uh, digital selves and our digital footprint. And we want, we want that to be let alone, but it, it wasn't what it was originally about in terms of privacy. So we've moved into this information privacy era and now this digital selves era. I think the change, there's a, a number of changes. Organizations have changed towards privacy. People have changed towards privacy and privacy itself has changed. You know, that we used to talk about privacy as just plain old privacy, the right to be let alone. And now it's so much bigger than, than that. And it includes data protection and it includes our digital selves and um, surveillance and on-street surveillance and CCTV footage. These were things that didn't exist back in 1890 when the, the Warren and Brandeis wrote their paper. But people are changing as well. If we look back to sort of late 1916, Weston uh, created segmentation. He created this thing called the theory of segmentation, where he broke the entire population into three groups. Now, there's you can argue that it's a bit arbitrary just picking three groups, but he did a lot of work on creating these three groups and created the fundamentalists. They had high privacy concern and high distrust, and then pragmatists. And then there were privacy unconcerned. So he said that the, the whole population could be broken down into these three groups. And at the time, that was probably right because um, privacy was so much simpler and we, were, we had a less digital self. I, I think now if we were to create the segmentation and uh, the, the work on Weston's theory of segmentation, we'd look and we'd say, in fact, we are all those three groups. Each individual has a fundamentalist view about perhaps their financial details and when they're online banking, but they have a privacy unconcerned view when they're just looking on the internet and they have a pragmatist view when they want to buy something online. So, so we're no longer three different kinds of people. We're actually three different types of, of, of concerns, three different levels, depending on what it is we do. And I think this is a big change. And, and whilst it doesn't affect us as privacy professionals, it, we need to understand our consumers when we're designing products and when we're building privacy by design into our products to understand, are our consumers going to be demonstrating or experiencing the fundamentalist experience, the pragmatist experience, or the privacy unconcerned experience? We also need to understand that, that people are changing in terms of privacy. We, we've heard things like privacy is dead. Privacy isn't dead. The, the expectation of privacy is changing and, and we're changing our expectations. You know, age influences those expectations. Our culture influences those expectations or the national legislation landscape changes those expectations. So we have huge differences now between expectations for privacy but that doesn't mean that privacy is dead. I, it just means that the influence that, that different factors have on us is changing. So for instance, 
why do we trade privacy and, and what are the influences? We, we trade it for things. We get something back for it when we give it away as individuals. So we know from studies that, that sort of people in their early 20s will trade privacy to be social. You know, they'll sell their souls for sociability. We know that those over 40s uh, will sell their souls for a 10% discount on a loyalty card. And, and the boomers, for instance, will reluctantly trade their privacy. They're, they're very cagey about being online and very uncomfortable. They have high privacy concerns. And so we see the boomers are, are probably the most reluctant to trade their privacy. And that's mainly because they don't understand where there's risk and where there isn't risk. So everything looks like risk to them. Where the younger people feel they know where there's risk and they know where there isn't risk. And so they feel they, they, they're very comfortable in that space. But I think we're, we're seeing this, this change happening in terms of our expectations towards privacy. They're reduced in many areas. When we're on social media, we have zero expectation of privacy. And the problem is, we say with boomers, is when they go onto social media, they expect privacy. When they don't get it, it creates a huge sense of concern for them. And that makes them reluctant to do almost anything online. As the boomers move out and, and the, the new generations move in, I think we're going to see continued change in that trend. And, and it's all about, you know, I suppose, academic studies looking at what these new generations, their perspectives on privacy are. And we need to get that new insight in as, they, as the, those new generations come through, particularly into the workforce. Um, but they're the big changes I see from the people perspective. And then from the organizations, uh, they need to start thinking differently about privacy. Uh, up until now, um, they've always thought of privacy as something that was compliance related. It was on the risk register. It, we see an awful lot of organizations now moving compliance out of the risk register, out of this risk department and into um, the corporate social responsibility pillars. Um, so we see it moving into privacy as a CSO or privacy as a CSG. For instance, to support that, in 2018, Forrester did a study and found that 28 companies in 2018 reported privacy as a CSO in their corporate social responsibility reports. In my study, which was in 2021, that moved to 65. So that's a huge jump, same index. And we're looking at the Fortune 100 index that represents a huge jump in, in the trend for privacy. So what organizations view privacy as. And, and I think when, it, when we start to see privacy as a CSO or we start to increase funding for it, we start to see it as a business enabler rather than a disabler. And we also get to communicate what we're doing as privacy professionals to a whole new audience, to the board, to stakeholders, because these are the people who are reading the CSO reports. So before, when we were off in a corner doing compliance, we didn't get such a wide audience to speak to about what it is we were doing. And I think that will change the, the resource and investment we get going forward. But, but they're the big changes that I see in terms of, of sort of going over the next 10 years. Really fascinating, Valerie. Thank you. And um, I think that takes us quite nicely on to, to my final question, um, which is what, what are the common mistakes you've seen organizations make in regard to their corporate privacy policies and, and what advice do you have for how they should be adapting or approaching in this area going forward? The big one, um, and you can 
ask a, a million privacy professionals and they'll all tell you the same thing is when you look at a privacy policy and you know it hasn't been customized, it's a cut and paste, it's a boilerplate cut and paste. Privacy policies need to be customized. They need to be customized for every single organization. Taking boilerplate copies will never work um, because you're you're copying errors, essentially. Um, And so it's a bit like clothes, tailor-made versus off the peg. Also, I think organizations are missing a trick when they just do a boilerplate copy because consumers read privacy policies much more frequently now than they did before. And within those privacy policies, you have an opportunity to tell the consumer who you are, what you're about, what your values are, how you value privacy, what privacy means to you um, as an organization. And this is your opportunity. It's like networking 101. It's that moment in the lift, your pitch. It's your one minute pitch. You've got this opportunity. Take it. And and you can't do that if you're just boilerplate copying Um privacy policies. So that's the first part, um, I think, is a big mistake that organizations make. And and the second one, um, which I, I often see, is making them generic. Let's not tell the consumer how long we keep their data for. Let's just say we'll keep it for as long as is necessary. That leaves us in compliance, but we actually don't really have to tell them anything. Keep it generic, keep it vague. And we started to see a number of different supervisory authorities saying, no, that's not good enough. Um, But there's a huge amount of privacy policies out there that communicate this vagueness. And and as a privacy professional, I find it really irritating um, because you have a, you know, there is a requirement on you to tell me how long you're going to hold the information for who you're going to share it with, to tell me you're going to share it with organizations and third parties as required is not sufficient and and it isn't in compliance. You have to tell me, but we see this vagueness all the time. So I, I think that's a huge mistake that organizations make. And, and you know, sometimes I, I've had this conversation with organizations and they say, well, you know, if we tell them too much, that's also a mistake. And, and I wouldn't disagree with that either because you can make something unreadable if you tell them too much. But there is this sweet spot in the middle. Um, where the consumer's need for knowledge will be fulfilled. And and the AI products that we see out there, so, you know, chat, CPT, or GPT, I beg your pardon, from OpenAI, it can generate policies. It can go out there and generate policies at the moment. And I've seen a number of examples of these policies. I haven't actually generated my own, but I've seen other um, privacy professionals who've generated them and I've taken a read of them. And they are not as good. And there's errors, in fact, in some of them, because it's not yet learned that, you know, you have to think of an organization beyond one jurisdiction. Quite often, there are multiple landscapes that an organization has to consider where it operates in multiple jurisdictions. So um, as a privacy professional, you're going to be looking at the privacy policy to make sure that it fits multiple jurisdictions or that you create separate ones for different jurisdictions where that's not possible. So this is a um, an area that I think we're going to see a lot of change in. I, I think it's it's going to be a disruptor to how we work, um, but it's not quite there yet and it's not quite ready. Um, and so in the meantime, we should use it to help create policies, but we should not use it to create them. 
if you know what I mean by the difference. Um, and, and, and they're the two big areas, I think, from an AI perspective, uh, or sorry, from a privacy policies perspective. Thank you very much, Valerie. Really, really appreciate you going into sort of such good explanations about what's a, what's a very fast evolving field of, of privacy. Thank you so much. And really very welcome. Your... Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Well, that was excellent. Really insightful there from Valerie and some great questions, James. So, Kevin, I know you had a listen to the interview before we um, jumped on the recording today. What in particular stuck out to you? Yeah, what, what I found particularly uh, fascinating is what Valerie said about inferential data and how legislations across the world will tackle this problem. Because uh, some question have to be asked, like, is it personal data, even though we didn't personally give it to anyone? Or should it be considered like as a new type of data? And obviously, these are still open questions. What I really love about what she said as well is that she emphasized on the good as well as the bad aspects of, of this inferential data. As usual in technology, this can be very like used for good things, but also for bad things. So it's not just black and white. It really depends on what we do with it. But it also depends on, on other factors like our intentions or how much we, we know about how the technology works and how much we know we can trust the algorithms that we're using. For example, she, she mentioned um, that inferential data could tell if someone was a, a woman based on the name that that person has given. So that could be making things easier in some processes of some admin. But also it could also be pro problematic if, if that person isn't a woman and, and, and uh, if it's not the case, it could, it could make it problematic. And same when, when she mentioned that, um, the diagnosis of Parkinson, obviously that's a good thing that could be very useful. But at the same time, if, if the, the algorithm is, is mistaken here, uh, what's what does it mean? How do we how do we deal with that? And who's responsible for that? So th there's obviously many more examples, and I I will certainly watch the space in the future. It's really interesting that she brought up the infra inferential data point actually, because I know one of the things that I understand can be part of that is um, dietary requirements. Because say you're going to an event and you're sending someone a list of dietary requirements, if you put that they're vegetarian, halal, whatever the requirement might be, obviously that infers um, a particular religious leaning as well. Um, so there's stuff like that to consider. I also thought it was interesting about the full employment of DPOs, but how that's becoming more of a cost centre now, because every everyone in 2018 was like, right, we all need a DPO to comply with GDPR. Um, and other regulations. And um, obviously, it's an interesting overview of the employment market, but also how it's become more difficult for organisations to employ people to fulfil that role and the cost associated with it. Obviously, big organisations, they might be able to absorb those costs, but smaller companies, mid-sized companies, it must be a huge um, challenge. And then just before we head off then, James, obviously, you had a really good chat with um, Valerie there. Was there anything that particularly stood out to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of in addition to, to the areas that you guys picked out, I, I also found the, the part where she was describing the kind of changing consumer attitudes to privacy yeah. really fascinating. Um, and obviously, as she mentioned, privacy is becoming so much more complex now um, compared to 
kind of the 1960s where, where she kind of started off the the first research into this area um so yeah it's uh she particularly picked out the the generation gap in this this regard uh, in in terms of how um sort of old, older generations tend to view privacy very differently to younger ones in particular uh in terms of using the online world and, and social media and things like that this is an area that's going to be constantly evolving and obviously as more younger generations uh, emerge so i sound very old saying that um <laughs> And, and sort of who are growing up in in the digital world and in the online world, it'll be interesting to see how these attitudes to to online to data data privacy online change in the coming years, and and obviously businesses will will have to adapt to that. Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of awareness around data now, who you're giving it to, what you're giving out, um, and how it's being used and whether it's being safely handled. But definitely some amazing points there from Valerie and um, just a real pleasure to listen to her talk um, talk to us about something that she's so knowledgeable on. But um, with that, we do come to the end of this month's podcast. So James and Kevin, thank you for chatting to me for this episode and um, pulling out some stuff on data privacy, fines, passwords, all that good stuff. And of course, a big thank you to Valerie for taking the time to share her expertise on this topic with us. Um, But with that, I'll uh, say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye, Beth. Pleasure to join. Thanks for listening to the Info Security Magazine podcast. For in-depth interviews with the industry's leading experts, check out our sister podcast where we sit down with a cybersecurity expert to discuss the hottest topics of the day and their personal journey into cybersecurity. And of course, for more news, analysis and expert insight, head to the Info Security Magazine website at infosecurity-magazine.com dot com.